Pray, yeah, let's pray. Lord, we think about storms that devastate and destroy. And Lord, we think of the power of nature. And surely it's just a small glimpse into your awesome and immeasurable power. You are the omnipotent God. Your arm, Lord, is not too short. You can do anything you choose to do. And so, Lord, we turn to you, our powerful God, and we pray that you would empower me and empower, in a sense, your word to make it useful, to make it effective, to apply it, Lord, to help it bring life where there is no life yet, and to stimulate unto love and good deeds those who read it and apply it to their hearts and lives. And so, Father, we look to you, our powerful God, to do what we cannot do, and that is to work in our midst through your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the realities that hits you rather clearly as you reach middle age is that you lose the ability to focus on reading material that's close at hand. Maybe you've seen some people recently where they've been trying to read something and they're holding it way out here and they can't seem to read it too well. I'm one of those people. I am wearing bifocals in my glasses. And uh, although my eyes are a little bit different in that sense, it's a long story, but anyway, uh, many of us have had to adjust to making change that occurs in midlife. By the way, the name of that condition is presbyopia. comes from the Greek word presby, which means elder. Opia means vision, which means older vision. When you reach that older age, you can't see well when it comes to reading things. And so the things which we did for years, reading that was effortless, effortless for us, has now become much more difficult, if not impossible, unless we use lenses or take steps to correct our vision because the lenses in our eyes become less flexible. That's the problem. Now, does that mean that we give up reading if you have this problem? I hope not. We get help, we see an eye doctor, or we go buy the cheap glasses in the drugstore, and we continue reading, and we utilize that assistance so that we can keep things in focus. Keep things in focus. From time to time, we as a church, we need to have assistance in regaining and maintaining our focus on the mission of our church. One reason this happens is because as a church, we're constantly seeing a flow of people into our church and people who are leaving our church. And so uh, as new people come in, they are maybe not familiar with what is the mission of this particular locality, this particular local church. And of course, there's another reason why we need to continually refocus this effort and understanding of the mission of our church is because those of us who have attended for a while, we are accustomed to certain patterns of ministry, which may, not necessarily, but which may over time, those patterns of ministry may become ineffective, no longer accomplishing what they were originally established to do. Now, this does not mean, of course, that we need to completely reinvent our church every six months or every 12 months. That's not what I'm suggesting at all. It means that from time to time we need to adjust and clarify our church's mission and bring into focus why New Village Church exists. 
The bottom line is that we need to keep the mission and the vision of our church continually and clearly in focus. So whether you need your bifocals or whether you don't need your bifocals or you take your insert in your bulletin, I want to just show you again how we printed for you a copy of our mission statement, our core values, and our vision statement. How many of you have taken the time to look this over at least once or a couple times and you're familiar with what I'm talking about? Okay, some of you have, a number of you have not. I encourage you to take some time at a subsequent time, don't read it all now, uh, but what I want to focus on is just the mission statement. Can you read along with me and read this mission statement together? Our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who treasure, live out, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now last week, we examined a portion of this particular mission statement. We looked at a couple of key concepts found, and we affirmed this concept of disciple-making. Hence the verse that we're memorizing for this month, the idea of bringing believers to maturity or completeness in Christ is one of the reasons why we exist. And we're... Our attempt is to ensure for that to happen, we know that we must have a teaching ministry and we need to have an admonishing ministry that goes on on a regular basis, taking the gospel truths, teaching and explaining them and admonishing people in those gospel truths so that the gospel will transform how we think and how we live our everyday lives. Now, if we ever stop learning and stop applying the gospel, that we as a church will have lost sight of the target toward which Jesus has set for this particular local church. Now this morning I want us to direct our attention to two more phrases that are found in this mission statement. I want to look at the phrase, proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to think about what that means a little bit. And also the phrase that ended the statement, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now there are numerous texts that I could have selected in order to to try to tackle this task before me, but I've selected a text from Acts chapter 1. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, verse 1, page number 1293 in your pew Bible. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. By the way, Acts is written by Dr. Luke, who is the author of, obviously, Luke's gospel, and this is the second book that he wrote, and really they're to be read Um, together. You really should know that if after you read the Gospel of Luke, you should jump into reading the book of Acts if you want to see the continuation of his writings in the second book. You'll see the way he he begins the the book that that's exactly what's going on. He says in verse 1 of chapter 1 of Acts of the Apostles, the first account I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive, and after his suffering, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of forty days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, Jesus said, you heard of from me. And John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, 
It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in both, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now this morning I want us to begin with what I would suggest to you is what Jesus is doing in this passage, and that is he's clarifying the mission. Point number one, he's clarifying the mission. Jesus' comments were directed at his disciples who needed to have some of their erroneous expectations, some of their erroneous assumptions corrected and, if you will, brought into better focus. And after Jesus, in verse 3, presented himself alive from the dead, he's clearly not hiding from them. He's, he's standing, he's ministering among them in his resurrection body. And he is giving them many convincing proofs that he truly was raised from the dead during this 40-day period. He taught his disciples primarily important truths on two central topics. First topic was the kingdom of God, Luke says. The second topic was the spirit of God. And those, he says, are very important concepts you need to understand if you're to understand the mission that lies before you and before us. Now, the disciples' view of the kingdom clearly was out of focus. They did not have an accurate understanding of the kingdom, and therefore they did not have an accurate understanding of their part or their mission in the kingdom. It's interesting here that John Calvin, as he comments on their question in verse 6, the comment, the comment of John Calvin is quite astute. He says, the, the, there are so many errors in this question as there are words in their sentence. And so he goes on to point out here that uh, clearly their, these disciples were looking for a political kingdom. And Jesus is saying, no, it's not going to be a political kingdom, but that's what they're looking for. Look at the word, verse 6, the word restore. Will you restore? And see, they're looking for the restoration of some form of the Davidic kingdom being restored and to take place at that time. They also had an incorrectly looking for an ethnically restricted kingdom. Notice in verse 6, an ethnically restricted kingdom. They're looking for a kingdom that's all about restoring the kingdom to whom? To Israel. And so in their minds, they're still picturing and assuming that the kingdom is going to be primarily populated by Jewish men, Jewish women, Jewish kids. That's what they expected. And so Jesus is going to make sure to clarify that false assumption about the kingdom. And then thirdly, they were also looking for, and wrongly so, they were looking for a geographically restricted kingdom. And I can understand why they would do so. Because Jesus had said to them in verse 4, he says, I want you to gather and stay right there in Jerusalem, the place where the temple was. I want you to stay right there because something's going to happen to you here in Jerusalem. And so they're assuming that Jerusalem is going to remain the center of worship and all these worship activities right here in the hub of Jerusalem. Now, in response to these incorrect expectations, Jesus provided some corrective lenses, if you will. He's going to try to make sure they see it more clearly by giving some very succinct teaching. And so he gives these disciples something that they can expect and work toward that will be different than what they've expected. So he reiterates 
that the kingdom of God is going to be a spiritual kingdom. A spiritual kingdom. He makes clear that the kingdom was going to be established by the Holy Spirit. Did you notice what he said there? He said in verse 5, You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. What's going to happen here is going to be something that the Spirit of God is doing. There's going to be a radical change, spiritually speaking, because the Holy Spirit is doing a work that's not been done before that time. Interestingly enough, that not only would the kingdom be made up of people who are not just of a lineage related to Abraham, but the people of God, the kingdom, is going to be made up of people who are born of the Spirit. John chapter 3, verse 6. And also, those who serve in the kingdom are not going to be only just people who are born of the Spirit, but they are only going to be able to fulfill the God-given responsibilities and duties by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. Only the Spirit will enable them to do what they've been given to do. Here's an interesting quote from John Stott. I wish I'd put it in your bulletin, but I didn't find it until after it was printed. I apologize. But listen to what he said. He summarizes what Jesus is saying. He says, The kingdom of God is God's rule set up in the lives of his people by the Holy Spirit. It is spread by witnesses, not by soldiers, through a gospel of peace, not a declaration of war. And by the work of the Holy Spirit, and not by force of arms, political intrigue, or revolutionary violence. Now that's a helpful summary of the difference between perhaps what they were envisioning the kingdom to be, and how Jesus is saying, this is a spiritual kingdom. Therefore, we must understand, as a church, and we do understand this, if the kingdom of God were to have been primarily political, then we as a church would want to invest most of our energies in legislative or governmental regulatory power. We would seek to become as much a part of the government as possible because that's where the power supposedly is for legislative uh, 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 imposing on people some sort of control. And our government continues to seek to do that. They think that that's going to solve all the problems of our world, to create more and more laws. Well, it doesn't. And we see that uh, very clearly. But the church will never fulfill Jesus' mandates through things like the moral majority. Some of you remember years ago, they started a moral majority thinking, oh, if we could just get organized and make ourselves politically active at the ballot box, we will solve things and the kingdom will advance. It didn't happen. It will never happen that way. I'm not suggesting we should not be involved in expressing our thoughts and our concerns and be involved in the political process. I'm just saying that the kingdom is not about political power. The kingdom does not have its geographic center as Washington, D.C. or Albany, New York. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have a voice and make our concerns known in those realms. We are salt and light, yes. But what I'm saying here is Jesus is saying to his disciples, he's saying to us, we as a church must invest our energies in understanding that the kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, period. Now, in light of that, I want to look at point number two. Oh, by the way, before I go to point number two, another false assumption held by these disciples was they were expecting it to ha- the kingdom to happen in its fullness immediately. 
Did you catch that in their, in their, in their statement there in verse 6? At this time, right now. And clearly, Jesus is, in his answer, he did not say at this time. He's saying there is a new age starting here, and it's not going to immediately appear. It's a gradually expanding kingdom. It is a, a, a kingdom that's radiating outward from the center. And I would suggest to you as evidence of that is in chapter 13, where the Holy Spirit, who now is making this spiritual kingdom expand, we read that the Holy Spirit sends out people. There's a movement away from not only Jerusalem, but all over the places. It steps over all kinds of boundaries, all sorts of uh, geographic areas, as well as cultural uh, boundaries and different kinds of people and ethnic groups. And so the gospel is moving out because why? The gospel is something that gradually expands and radiates outward through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, having said that, I want to look at point number two now. We as a church are absolutely dependent upon the Holy Spirit to do what we are unable to do. And therefore, number, point number two is we have an empowering, empowering the mission. We are desperately in need of power as a church. Power to do what we cannot do, and what we cannot do is, sub-point there is, is to change lives. I cannot change anybody's life, and you cannot change anybody's life. By the way, you can't change me, and I can't change you. Those of you who are married, you learned that lesson, hopefully. You learned that lesson. But the, but the reality is what? We are talking about a spiritual kingdom, and therefore, we as a church have agreed and understand that we are unable to make alive sinners who are dead in their trespasses and sins. We cannot do that. We do not have the ability to do that, and therefore we understand that we are in tremendous need of a spiritual power that is beyond what we have. And so Paul reminded the Corinthian believers, very interesting passage in chapter 2 of his first epistle, Paul looks back and he says, you know, unregenerate people, unbelievers, are unable to discern spiritual truth apart from the revealing ministry of the Holy Spirit. He says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. A natural man, that means an unbeliever, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot, I emphasize that word, he cannot understand them. Why? Because they are spiritually appraised or spiritually examined. And so, there's a sense in which an unbeliever, he can't see it, he can't get it. He's not, going to make, he's not going to make sense of the gospel in a way that will change his life on his own. He goes on to say in verse 10 of the same chapter that God revealed, however, those things to us, to believers, by his Spirit. And so Jesus said in John 6, 44, no one can come to me. That's a statement of ability, not permission. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 6, 44. So our witness, our gospel witness, will never transform sinners apart from the quickening, regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, maybe you want to turn there in your Bible, 1 Timothy chapter 1, sorry, I'm saying Timothy, I mean Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 
Paul celebrates as he looks back and reviews what occurred in his ministry to these Thessalonian believers, and he is celebrating the fact that when the Spirit of God was clearly at work in them, as he ministered and proclaimed the gospel to them, because we read this, verse 9, they turned from idols to serve the living and true God. Paul says, clearly, God was working, and we know the, see the, we saw the outward evidence of that. Look at verse 5 of chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. He says, not just that we came and spoke to you a bunch of words, but clearly the Spirit of God took the words that we were speaking, which was scriptural truth, and he brought it in power and conviction and brought change in their hearts and lives so they turned from their idols to serve the true and living God. And if the kingdom of God is to expand, there must be life-transforming power. Period. Now, it's interesting that Jesus talks about this power in Acts 1.8. There are a number of words for power in the Greek language, but the interesting choice of words here is that Jesus said there is a need for explosive, hugely effective power, and it comes from a Greek word, dunamis, from which we get the commonly used word dynamite. I had a very interesting conversation with Joshua Stark, those of the Starks are up here, on um, their son, the youngest son, on Christmas Eve. Joshua was here, and uh, we, I asked him how things going. He said, oh, they're going great. And I knew that his job is one of the most unique and unusual jobs you can imagine in this area. He is what they call a sand hog. Now, I'm not trying to disparage the guy. That's what you call him. What that means is that he works with a crew of underground construction members who are tunneling through bedrock anywhere from between 500 to 800 feet below New York City. Now think about that for a while. Think if your job was to tunnel through and remove the rock and make this tunnel exist underneath New York City. Now, there are several ways you could do that. Hundreds of years ago, you would have said, all the way we could do that is to take a hammer and a chisel and do it by muscle power. Boom, 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 boom. Take you forever. Could it be done? Well, you could get a little bit of rock out of there, a little bit, you know, each day. You could make some dent. But there's another way. Yes, that's the way. That's right. Dakota, thank you. Sound effects. All right. There's another way you could have done it. And then more recently, they've come up with pneumatic power, where you take a jackhammer. I'm not going to seek to imitate a jackhammer because we'll have further noise. But you know what a jackhammer sounds like, and it has that repeated sense of banging against the rock to to loosen it up so you can remove it. There's another approach that they probably still use, hydraulic power, which means they take uh, hydraulic uh, energy and they're they're moving a drill into the rock, creating some sort of, of fragment somehow as they drill into the rock. But what did Joshua and his group do? He says, I've now worked my way up, so I'm the guy that pushes the dynamite into the holes that we drill and making sure the wires are all set. He's part of the dynamite crew. They go in there, they put that stuff in there and clear out, move around the corner. Three, two, one, boom! And what happens? You have explosive power 
loosening up that rock, doing what you couldn't be done any other way, uh, unless it took years and years and years and years and years to do that. It does it just like that. Now, Jesus talks about power to bring about life-changing, dynamic, Holy Spirit work in the lives of people as we proclaim the gospel. It is a dunamis, a dynamite kind of power. And so the goal of gospel ministry here at New Village Church is not to produce moralists who boast about their outward performances, who say, well, you know, I can, vary, I can perform various acts of piety, or various moralists who can say, well, I avoid certain kinds of no-no behavior, certain kinds of improper behavior. Well, I don't do that. We're not here to create moralists. Our goal as a church is to proclaim Christ and him crucified and risen again and becoming convinced that no one will see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Unless the Holy Spirit changes their heart and applies the gospel and really has a heart dramatically changed by the power or the dunamis of the Holy Spirit. Our goal here is not to develop people who measure themselves by themselves by performing various outward acts of righteousness to be seen of men. Those are Pharisees. We're not here to create Pharisees. We're here to strive to faithfully proclaim, apply the gospel of Christ, crucified and risen, which Paul said that the gospel itself is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So we believe there is power in the gospel made effective by the Holy Spirit who further takes that message and applies it to people's hearts, bringing conviction, bringing a sense of heaviness over their sin and guilt before God, and crying out saying, Lord Jesus, save me. I repent of my sins. I turn and I yield to you in full trust. We are not here as a church to encourage people to only make decisions to ask Jesus into their lives. Now, don't hear me wrong. Maybe you have been involved in such earlier in life. But there's a danger among many churches, particularly down south, where I've served in my former pastorate. I remember running into people in that church, and I'd say, uh, what's your name? And they'd introduce themselves to me. Oh, I went to that church uh, 45 years ago. I said, well, where are you attending now? I don't go to church anymore. I haven't been at church in 45 years. I'm like, okay. And I said, well, what, what was your experience in church? Oh, I prayed to receive Christ when I was six years old. VBS or whatever. Now, what's the sad reality of those people and many like them? The sad reality is that they have, they're relying, their faith and their trust is in a decision they made years ago. A decision which has given them a false sense of assurance that somehow now they stand right before God because they made a decision years ago. My friend, we're not encouraging and do we want people to feel confident and to feel secure in the fact that they made some decision at an event years ago as the basis of their salvation. We want people to understand the gospel is powerful. It brings about change in the heart, and the change in the heart is the fruit of repentance and ongoing faith. And we can't do that. I can't do that. None of us can see that happen apart from the Holy Spirit. The goal we have as a church is to see hearts and lives transformed by the dunamis, by the power of the gospel. I find it so helpful that Paul Tripp, 
uses this story about a man who owned an apple tree. And as an apple tree owner, he longed for and waited for and was expecting to have nice, delicious apples grow on his apple tree. Well, he finds at the end of the year that the apples that he has are sorry apples. They are dried up, no good, can't eat them, all rotten. And uh, he's very disappointed. So he decides that, well, that tree is not serving a good purpose, so I'm going to make that tree function the way I want it to. So he goes out. He takes away, all, it takes away everything that's rotten on the tree, goes to the uh, orchard and uh, at the farmer's stand, and he buys a whole bushel of nice, shiny, delicious apples that have been grown somewhere else. He comes back, and he gets his ladder out, and puts a, uh, a monofilament uh, uh, line, and he ties onto each branch a different apple, nice, shiny-looking apple. On, all this, on this unproductive, sick apple tree, he's got these nice-looking apples. Now, he can make the tree look nice, but he, the real problem is he needs to what? He needs to uproot that old tree, put a new tree in there, and see some real fruit come that's real apples on a real tree based on what? A change of the apple tree itself. So we as a church are committed to proclaiming life-imparting gospel of Jesus Christ in reliance upon the Spirit of God to do what we cannot do, And that is to powerfully impart a new nature, a new disposition in the hearts of people who hear, understand, and are convicted by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we see the evidence of that as a love for Christ, as a passion for Christ and His kingdom, as we see the evidence of holy living that comes now from a life that's been changed on the inside, so that we're not just having a Pharisee who who can look good on the outside, but his heart is still corrupt. But we're looking for the Spirit of God to have a heart that's been changed. And the fruit of that is the outward fruit of someone who really loves Christ and loves other people who are followers of Christ and who shows the evidence of true repentance and true saving faith only because the evidence of the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. So that means that we as a church, we don't do a lot of gimmicky kind of things to get people to make some sort of high-pressure decision. We're not about making decisions. We're about making disciples whose hearts have been changed by the power of the gospel. Now, I would say this. Only the power of the gospel can change, as the Bible describes, I kind of get over the fact that Tim picked a, a screen here, beginning of the service, talked about the difference between changing a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. I can't do that. None of us can do that. But God can and does do that through the power of the Spirit as the gospel is proclaimed. Now, that's going to lead us to our second point here, sub-point. Regarding the power of the Holy Spirit, it's essential that we must... The Holy Spirit is essential for there to be emboldened lives of the witnesses. Those who are witnesses need to have emboldened lives. They need to be people who are bold. And witnesses, you say, well, what's a witness? He says in Acts 1.8, you will be witnesses. Well, what's a witness? A witness is a person who declares what they've seen, what they've heard, what they've experienced. I've sat on a jury before. And uh, in sitting there, they bring these witnesses up. They, they testify and tell the truth. They go up and they say, now, what did you see on this particular day in question? They give the date and the time. They say, what did you see at that occasion? Well, I saw the vehicle coming around the corner, whatever. And they describe what they saw. And they keep, that's all they're supposed to say, what they saw, what they heard, what they know. 
And in a sense, that's what we're called to do, right? As witnesses, we are to be people who bear witness to the love, to the saving grace, to the power of the gospel as we have known it, as we've experienced it in our lives. At the time that Jesus spoke these words of promise, he knew that his disciples were still people who were fearful, they were cowardly, and I'm sure they were intimidated by the sheer scope of the commission that he had given them to make disciples of all nations. And Jesus promised on numerous occasions that he would give the Spirit of God to his followers so that they would be effective witnesses and expansively proclaim in a proclamation that goes further outward and outward and outward. As he told them, I'm going to give you my Spirit. Look back at Luke 24 one more time. We read it earlier. Luke 24, last chapter, page 1258. It's interesting, if you read the last chapter of Luke and you go right into Acts 1, boy, it's interesting how those things all just fit together like puzzle pieces. You'd think they were written by the same author. Hello? They were. Okay, Luke 24, 49. What does he say? Jesus says, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with what? With power from on high. So he says, you as a witness, you're not going to be an effective witness unless you have this power. What's he talking about? The Holy Spirit. If you look at John 15, verse 26. You don't have time to look it up. John 15, 26. When the Helper comes, Jesus says, whom I will send you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will what? Bear witness of me, and you will bear witness also. So here's Jesus saying the Holy Spirit's going to bear witness of Jesus, and you are going to bear witness of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. And you find in the book of Acts all sorts of examples of how this connection between the Holy Spirit and witnesses, how it, how it works. There's a number of them in Acts. I don't have time to be exhaustive here, but I put them in your notes. Peter there, in chapter 4, verse 8 of Acts, we read that Peter, what? Filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them in response. What in the world are you doing here, Peter? Filled with the Holy Spirit, he gives a response. A, a response of courage and taking a stand. Acts seven fifty five. several pages later, it's Stephen, who in his attempt to give a sermon is being interrupted, by those who just can't stand to hear what he said, but it said, full of the Holy Spirit. At the end of that message, he's full of the Holy Spirit. He's been speaking the truth. And there he is, been ready to die for the truth as they're stoning him alive. And then Saul, in Acts 9, verse 27, a fascinating passage in which he's been confronted, dramatically changed on the result of being on the road to Damascus. His life is radically changed. He comes back, a changed guy, Instead of destroying the church, he's trying now to say, listen, I'm a follower of Jesus now. I'm following Messiah, Jesus. People are shocked. Verse 27 says, Barnabas took hold of Saul, brought him to the apostles, described to them how he'd seen the Lord in the road, how he had talked with him, how Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord, and he was talking, arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. And when the Holy Spirit, when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to, to uh, Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit continued to increase. The Spirit of God was working, even through Saul and the early believers. It continues on and on. There were people who were put on the spot and they declared unashamedly 
the gospel of Jesus Christ, their experience and their understanding of the truth of who Jesus was. He is crucified. He is risen from the dead. Boy, that was highly offensive to many people. Talk about a raised Jesus from the dead. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa. It'll stop you right in your tracks. They also insisted that Jesus was the only way to God, Acts 4.12, exclusive. They didn't, they didn't pull any punches. And the Spirit enabled them to courageously take a stand and declare what was unpopular and what was offensive to many of their folks in their audience. Here we are in a day and age where the concept of sin is scoffed at and everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Folks, we are living in that age, let me tell you. Those of us who see this, we must rely upon the Spirit's enabling power to speak the truth in love and to be witnesses of the gospel wherever God assigns us. Rather than accommodating the spirit of the age, which celebrates what? Highly esteeming self. That is the spirit of the age. Don't think anything bad about yourself. You are all that. That's what people want you to believe and, and what most people think and assume. But in light of that kind of pervasive kind of thinking, we are to be filled with the Spirit. We're to bear witness to our own brokenness, our own guilt, our own conviction of sin that we went through and understood as part of the gospel powerfully working in us to crush pride. And then that's the kind of things that we can share and impart to people. Listen, my life used to be going in this direction, but this is how God crushed me, brought me to my knees. I understood what I was doing, how I was so offending a holy God. And as we explain those things, then we bring in the gospel of grace. We bring in the love of God and the love of Jesus and talk about trusting in Him alone. So we as a church, we are committed to testifying to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we don't believe it all takes place in these, in these four walls in this building. We thank God for this building. We thank God for this property. But we understand that is not necessarily where all the witnesses to take place. It does take place here on a regular basis as we worship, but it also takes place wherever we are. That's a radical thought when you think about it. Our most effective witness is not necessarily right here in these four walls. It's where you are. That's where you are interacting with people who are what? Who are unbelievers. And I'm convinced most of you are far more effective at that than I ever will be. Because why? Because the majority of my life is involved with church ministry. That's not to say I shouldn't have any responsibility. I do. I'm seeking to know people on my street. I'm trying to build a relationship with them on a regular basis. But there's no way, and it's not possible, that repentance for forgiveness of sins will ever be proclaimed to all the nations, to all people groups, to all sorts of people who live here in this area, in Suffolk County, to Long Island, New York, east coast of the United States, North America, South America, Asia, Australia, Africa, all the continents of the nation. It will never happen, my friend, apart from the transforming, motivating, working, and dunamis, the power of the Holy Spirit, pushing and leading and sending out members of the body of Christ with, uh, to bear witness to the gospel. And you know, my friends, I've been thinking about this. I think we're seeing God do it. We're seeing God do it in ways that it just it boggles your mind. Think about it. This church, years ago, how many people attending this church in the 1800s, how many people went somewhere and cross-culturally, went somewhere else 
as a leading of the Holy Spirit to take the gospel to some other culture group and to break some big barrier and actually take the gospel to a people group that never would have been reached otherwise. I don't, I'm not aware of anybody. They may have supported somebody, but I don't think they ever sent anybody either. Do you know that we all have people that we have sent from our church that have gone to various people and are still going? And some of them are on our list of actual missionaries. Some of them are just people being led by God to do, do it. The generation of the 20-year-olds, the generation of the teens that we have now, they are far more willing to make these big leaps. Why? Because they're not living for the American dream. It's not what life is about. Life is about the kingdom. It's amazing to see what God is doing as he's raising up, even with my own family. I'm amazed to see what God has enabled my own offspring to do that I would never even dream of doing. But God is doing it. How? It's not because I'm such a great parent. It's not because our church is so strict. It's because the Holy Spirit has his way of getting his people to say, I am so burdened and so willing to do whatever the Spirit wants me to do that I'm seeing a power at work within me. It happens in the heart. We must never lose sight of that, my friends. We ought to always be praying, Lord, raise up that generation of people. Raise up more of them, Lord. We want to send them forth because that's what the Spirit will do. He will send them. Praise God for that. Jesus said, when the disciples received the power of the Holy Spirit, there would be what? Witnessing. Witnessing. You say, oh, just the thought of that, just when you say that, witnessing, freaks me out. I get very terrified. I'm, I'm extremely afraid of bearing witness to Christ. Can you identify with that? I think we all can on some level, right? This is where my last point is so critical and so essential. Number two is a sub-point. An essential ingredient. One way the Spirit helps us gain empowerment for witnessing is through the means of prayer. Let me ask you, do you ever humble yourself and acknowledge your reliance upon God and cry out to God for power power in the gospel to transform your life and in transforming your life to be a witness for God and for Christ, then also saying, Lord, I am also seeking you because I am burdened for and longing to see the Spirit bear witness of bringing life to the lost people that I'm praying for, that I have a burden for. Do you pray for anybody that you know for sure is not in the kingdom and you long to see them in the kingdom? My friend, that's an evidence the Spirit is working and seeing power at work in you to say what? I desperately need to see the Lord do something I can't do, so I'm going to seek you, Lord. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, Paul talks about what? Spiritual battle. How do you do it? With prayer. We engage in spiritual battle in prayer. And so he says we are to pray in the Spirit. I think what he means there is that we pray prayers that the spirit is breathing into us a sense of earnestness and reality of the prayers i'm not just saying well lord will you just bless the missionaries help them in their all their problems and help everybody to be fine with the praying in the spirit means lord we need you to do what we cannot do you need to change these people's hearts open their blinded eyes break through their hardened hearts Make it so that their lives are turned upside down until they finally repent and see who Jesus really is and treasure Him. Sometimes our prayers 
need the what? Need the power of the Holy Spirit to infuse them. And so we as a church, one of our goals is to say, as our mission is, we must be as a people under our value statements there, is we believe in prayer. Now we're woefully lacking in this regard, but we do see that as being essential for us in effective ministry. So Paul says what? I see the people around me who are, not, who are lost, and he admits in Romans 10, my heart's desire and my prayer to God was that my fellow Jews would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ as their Messiah. Here's Paul saying, I make it my prayer for these, all my brethren who are Jewish brethren, I still pray for them, I'm longing for them, I'm asking God to, to save them. And then Paul does what? He's not only praying for unsaved people, he's an experienced missionary, he's a church planter, he's praying for all these unbelievers out of a heart of compassion and love, but he recognizes something else. This is even more astounding. Look at Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. Paul, as a witness to Christ, says, I need prayer. You say, oh, wait a minute. Paul the missionary? Paul the guy who started churches? Paul the guy who wrote books of the Bible? He's asking for prayer for himself? Let me ask you something. When's the last time you asked anybody to pray for you that you might have power and boldness to be a witness for Christ wherever you are at work or your family or your friends or whatever? You say, oh, well, yeah, I don't, that's nothing. I don't usually ask people to pray for me. Well, it's biblically patterned here for us, isn't it? Apostle Paul, he says what? Colossians 4, verses 3 and 4. He urges the members of that church to pray for him and his fellow missionaries that God may open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ in order that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. He's asking for what? Make sure I'm clearly speaking and making sure what? Give me an open door, Lord. Open it up so I don't force my way in. Give me an open door so I can speak the word. Another request for prayer that Paul had is Ephesians chapter 6. He says, pray that I would have utterance be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Mystery meaning there what? Something hidden but now it's clear. Something that was not very clear, now it's clear. The mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in change that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. What do you get the sense? Paul's acknowledging sometimes we hold back. Sometimes I don't really speak it as boldly as I know I need to. He says, pray for me that I might not just back away from it, but when the door's open, that I'll speak it clearly as God would have me do it. I can't help but think that one of the things we ought to be doing in our growth groups is we ought to be praying for each other and praying for people who are lost. We as a church, this is something that we ought to be a core, a core value of what we're about is to say we need power, power from God to see people's lives changed and the gospel imparted to them, and then we need what? Power as a witness to speak what I need to speak. And let me tell you something. We are thankful to see, and we've seen evidence of God answering that prayer, because when people give their baptisms, and then they testify of Christ at their baptism, guess what? Every single one of them, everybody I've ever baptized, scared to death. And God has given them the grace and the power through the Holy Spirit to speak forth and say, I'm going to bear witness to what God's done in my life. And that's all we're asked to do. Bear witness to what God has done. May God help us. Let's pray. Oh, Holy Spirit, may you impart 
your power. In the hearts of anyone who is here today, Lord, who merely has made a decision for Christ, perhaps in their past, or someone who may have had some sort of decision that they made, that it never bore witness, never showed any outward evidence, there's no sign of the life of Christ within them, Lord, I pray even today, you would use your Holy Spirit to apply these truths and that you would bring about life in them, Lord. Quickening them from being dead in their sins to being alive in Christ. And that the evidence of that, Lord, would be they cry out to you and seek you for your forgiveness through Jesus Christ and him alone and his crucifixion, his resurrection, and that they would repent and turn from their sin. Lord, do what we cannot do, I pray. And Lord, for those of us who are witnesses for Christ, would you empower us, I pray. Remove from us, I pray, the fear of man and replace it with a heart of compassion, a heart of conviction, a heart of burden for those who are lost and a desire to be faithful in proclaiming what's true and just saying, this is my story. I'm just telling you what God has done in my heart and life. And here's how I know why the scriptures confirm this is the truth. Lord, I pray that you might do your work by your Holy Spirit because we are desperate for that help, Lord. We are desperate. We live in a wicked day which all evil is not only tolerated, it is celebrated. And people are going into eternity apart from Christ. And so, Father, you do among us what we cannot do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.